Are you that weirdo who's ready to hear more about Satanic Panic? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Okay, hi, welcome or welcome back. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Weird, and we're right, well, well, coming to the end of our spooky season Mm -hmm, um, kind mm -hmm. of block, and um, we are back with another episode on satanic panic and how it affected people in the United States. Yep. I got a very long story for you today. Okay. (laughs) I haven't heard this one, so I am ready to hear it and before we get started i just one let's go over the cocktail we are drinking our version of the midnight margarita made in the movie practical magic which is one of my favorite spooky season fall time witchy uh movies i think it's one of the best it's a good best one of the best but so many s's because it's that good (laughs) Um, it is a lovely pink margarita. So per usual, check out our pictures on social media for that and the recipe. And um, moving right along, I just want to issue a trigger warning for child abuse and child sexual abuse. Yes, thank you. Should we jump right into it? Yeah, without further ado. I guess you can't really start until I say that. I'm sorry. I literally can't. I don't know why you wouldn't have said that. (laughs) Come on, Cassie. Get it together. Mine is on paper, so be ready for these sweet, classic sound effects. Oh my gosh, I love it. You're a throwback. I'm so old school. Today, I am exploring the Thurston County ritual abuse case with my main focus being the Ingram family. So I'm going to cite my sources first. I read two super long, very long articles, technically, but short novel, maybe, called Remembering Satan that came out in the 90s by The New Yorker, written by Lawrence Wright. Um, It's a two-parter. I watched a Vimeo called Paul, The The Secret Story of Olympia's Satanic Sheriff. Sorry, what? that's a lot of S's. Um, I listened to an interview that KNKX did. Um, and I also used Wikipedia. And I feel like there was another article in there, but that was the ma- my main sources. In 1988 in Thurston County, Washington, Paul Ingram was accused of sexual abuse by his daughters, Erica and Julie Ingram. Erica was 22 years old and Julie was 18 at the time. So this story is very long and complicated, as these stories tend to be. Right. I had to edit out a lot of information just to make it fit in our time constraints and honestly, Mm -hmm. just to make it manageable for myself. So if you want to learn more about it, I do recommend those articles from The New Yorker, which will be linked. And this is also a case where I know that a lot of it is absolutely false, in my opinion, I guess I should say. Mm -hmm. But I am also not going to sit here and say that these young women are liars. I'm just going to relay the information and let the listener make their own judgments, basically, is what I'm saying. I mean, 
these cases are very, very, very complicated. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe something did happen to these women. Mm-hmm. I don't think that satanic ritual abuse happened. Mm-hmm. But something might have happened. And I'm just, I'm not going to make those judgments. I'm just pretty much going to lay out the, st- the story, the case. Okay. I like that. I like um, the place you're coming from. Neutral stance. So dear listener, you decide. <laughs> you're the judge here. <laughs> okay. First, I want to give a quick overview of the Ingram family. There's Sandy and Paul, who are the parents. Mm-hmm. Their firstborn son, Paul Ross, born in 1965. Then in 1966, they had twins, Erica and Andrea. Unfortunately, Andrea had meningitis as a baby, and her health issues became too much for the family. She ended up living in a special facility where she died as a teen because of her health issues. Um, So she's not really mentioned again in the story. Chad was born next in 1968, then Julie in 1970, and then Mark, the baby of the family, was born in 1978. So this was a quite a large family. Yeah, definitely. And I just, I think it's helpful to just get kind of a lay of the land when you're talking about a family. Mm-hmm. I agree, 100%. It helps, it helps you picture mm-hmm. um, kind of, yeah, I totally agree. Paul Ingram, the father was chief civil deputy of the sheriff's department and the chairman of the local Republican Party. He and his wife and the whole family grew very active in the Church of the Living Water, a Protestant fundamentalist church that believed in speaking in tongues and the laying of hands. Oh, okay. Interesting. They actually converted, which I touch on later. They were Catholic for a long time, and then they converted to this um, Pentecostal church. Sandy, the mom, had different short-term jobs, but mainly took care of their large family, which was a huge amount of work, I can only imagine. (laughs) And she also took care of their household that sat on 10 acres and made all attempts at being self-sufficient with animals, a garden, and so on. So it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's tending, just tending to the family is a lot, but then tending to a full-time garden, probably a full seasonal year-round garden and then animals mm-hmm. that's that's a lot yeah they wanted to pretty much be self-sufficient and it was a lot of you know chores a lot of work for everybody involved and I'm, I'm sorry I know you probably said this but I missed where where was this it's in Thurston County in Washington Washington okay although the family seemed picturesque from the outside it should be noted that every child basically fled from home as soon as they were able Oh. A rift between parents and children seemed to have formed. Paul and Sandy, however, seemed to be doing pretty good. Minus a short affair Paul had in the past. Okay. They slept together naked on a waterbed and had sex multiple times a week. So Okay. That, <laughs> that was in a lot of the articles, and I thought you would love that detail, so I threw it in for you. Well, I appreciate that. But I, I'm wondering, is it pertinent to the story or just adding no, a little that bit was, of spice? That was just for you, Cassie. And I am offended that you aren't more excited about No, I am excited. I, you know that I love waterbeds. I, you, I, you know, I think it's one of those, I don't know, maybe it's a misconception on mine. But I feel like if somebody had a waterbed, they're just kind of like freakier than the rest of us. I think that that was the implication. And also, I hate waterbeds. And to sleep naked on a waterbed, what if the sheet came up? You would be 
fucking glued to that rubber <laughs> mattress that you're sleeping on. <laughs> oh god. my god, so sweaty and sticky. Peeling your butt cheeks off of it. I've, <laughs> as a rule of thumb, I don't sleep naked just because I have a irrational fear that my house in the middle of the night is going to somewhere spontaneously burst into flames and then I will be in my in front of my entire neighborhood naked. That's why you actually should sleep naked. So all my neighbors can see my kids. (laughs) Reward your neighborhood with your nudity. (laughs) That's great. That's put that on a bumper sticker. Reward your neighborhood with your nudity. I just don't want to wake up and have one of my kids in there, like my nipple in their eye. Oh, yeah. That's that's like, but I also tend to sleep on my, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Because if you sleep on your back, like the least of your problems is a nipple in their eye. Mm -hmm. I am a stomach sleeper with, I bring one of my legs up like a frog kind of yeah. mm-hmm. and it's like imagine the the show that they did not <laughs> ask for when they walk into that naked mom sleeping no they pro- they'll probably throw up I don't know I they would love it everybody would love it <laughs> I mean everyone does love naked mom I'm happy that we haven't gone off on any tangents yet this is good you knew what would happen if you brought up the naked sleeping in the waterbed you knew what would happen <laughs> that's the only tangent you get I have so okay. many pages right. left fair enough okay. Okay. I'll, I'll pipe down. I summed up the family. I gave a little background. So we got the picture laid. Yes. I mean, we have a lot of pictures in our mind right now, obviously, honestly. <laughs> in 1988, Erica and Julie, Erica as a counselor, attended a religious camp called Heart to Heart. While there, a speaker came and gave a talk or performance, however you want to interpret it. Right. This speaker was named Carla Franco. She claimed that she had the biblical gifts of healing and spiritual discernment. Franco said the Holy Spirit would fill her up and essentially tell her things or show her things. This particular sermon at the Heart to Heart seemed to be extremely intense. And this is a little graphic. She said she saw a vision of someone being molested and suddenly a young girl leapt from her seat and ran out of the room. They found the girl in the bathroom attempting to drown herself in the toilet. Oh no. I, that, sorry, that got to me. I was like, that's very scary. Yes. And terrible. And yeah, yes, very scary. After this extremely excited day Erica was found crying and what comes next depends on who you talk to as most of this story goes one story claims that Erica was found crying so the counselor asked Franco to pray over her when she did Erica readily admitted that her father had been sexually abusing her another story goes that while Erica was crying Franco approached laid hands and made the proclamation I see the word molested You have been molested by your father, and it's been going on for years. So either way, the claims of sexual abuse were made that day, and the ball was set in motion. I mean, you have to think, too, that even if if nothing else had ever been said after this moment, this was at their church's church camp. Mm -hmm. People in their community immediately knew. Their pastor knew. The counselors knew. I mean, it's it started, right? 
Yes, yes. It should be followed up with. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it was already out there very quickly. Yes, the can of worms is just been has just been opened in in a very public way. Exactly. Also, something that I wanted to add here was, and this was just kind of touched on. There wasn't a lot of information on it, but um, Erica and Julie had made claims of sexual abuse before. The previous, I think, three or four years, there had been different allegations of abuse over the years. There was claims of an alleged rape and sexual abuse had been claimed by the girls. But investigations into these allegations led to dead ends or the stories ended up changing too much and the charges were dropped. Okay. And they were claims against someone in their family or? No, they were they were not claims against Paul. They okay. were claims. One was um, a neighbor, I believe. And then one, I think, was maybe a co-worker of Paul's. Okay. Shortly after this latest revelation at Heart to Heart, both girls abruptly moved out of their parents' house. They distanced themselves from their parents during this time. However, a couple of months later, after a church service, they decided to finally explain why, why they had left their family home. Erica went to lunch with her mom and told her that she had been sexually abused by her father. She said that the abuse stopped in 1975 when their family joined the Pentecostal church. Because as I said before, that they were um, Catholic. Uh, at this time, Julie was actually with Paul, the father. So it was just Eric. It was just um, Erica and the mom, like one on one. Sandy went home and confronted Paul. Paul denied all of the allegations, stating, "quote I never touched those girls." Sandy also spoke with Julie, who confirmed Erica's story. She also claimed that her oldest brother molested her as well. She claimed that the abuse had stopped five years previously. The next day, Sandy and Paul went on a vacation they had planned. Uh, Which, yeah, I know it seems strange, but it was under the shadow of those accusations. And most of the trip was spent discussing the issues at hand. I think that uh, they were just like at a beach or lake house kind of situation. So it was just the two of them. So maybe they thought it might actually be good to be alone and discuss it. Obviously, I can't speak to their thought process there, but the trip did not go well from what I read. Okay. At this same time, a rape crisis counselor took Julie to meet with police investigators. So now I'm going to briefly go over the type of allegations that were made in these early interviews. And you will notice that there is definitely a shift in the type of allegations made from these early allegations to the longer the investigation progresses. So the Julie claimed that the abuse started when the girls were very young, fifth grade or even before. And Julie and Erica both made these claims. Okay. It started with Erica, but they were both making claims. Um, the women claimed that their father had vaginally and anally raped them. Um, they said that he would come into their room at night and assault them. Erica claimed that she was given an STD by her father and that they had gone to a doctor in California and also in their hometown to have it treated. In these early claims, there were some discrepancies in time frames. For example, Erica first claimed the abuse stopped a decade before, but then it shifted to it ending just a few weeks before. Okay. Also, there was something else that was noted in one of the articles. They said that a friend had asked the sisters what they thought would happen to Paul 
mm-hmm. when these accusations came out. And one of them said, I'm not sure. I think he'll probably get fired, which is a strange response. Not he's he needs to go to jail, but I'm not sure if maybe because of it was the 80s, if maybe they just didn't understand like that he should be in prison if he is yeah. doing these things. Um, yeah. So after the initial interview with Julie and Erica, they brought Paul Ingram in for questioning, mm-hmm. which we have to remember that he worked with these men because this is right. the sheriff's department. That's right. So Paul Ingram was brought into his local precinct and questioned not only by his colleagues, but also some of them were his subordinates, which only made matters at hand more complicated and uncomfortable for everyone involved, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I would, I would think, and this is the eighties, you know, we're looking back. So it's easy to kind of say like, ah, I would have done this differently. Um, maybe an outside agency would have been the best option. Yeah. Nowadays this would not fly. I'm yeah, fairly certain. Um, also I didn't include the detectives names here because there are already a lot of names to keep straight there, right. but there were at least three detectives, two men and one female detective. The female detective handled the more sensitive things, which was helpful to them at the time right so when questioned Paul said that he could not remember molesting his daughters but added quote if this did happen we need to take care of it I can't see myself doing this but there may be a dark side of me that I don't know about what end quote so I think that that initial response when the detectives were saying your daughter said that you molested them for years did you do this? And I think that him saying, I can't remember, but this strange, but if I did it, there's a dark, there might be a dark side of me. I think that this response is really what threw detectives so far off that the investigation just went in one direction after that. I don't, I I can see how that response would be. Well, especially if these other detectives are also entrenched in the same religion Mm-hmm. Um, or highly religious, mm-hmm. I could see how that that is a very, in my opinion, inappropriate response. Bizarre response. Yes, I would never myself respond to allegations in that way. But the more I researched this, the more I thought about it. So they are a part of a church. They're very mm-hmm. religious. Mm-hmm. And in their church, they believe that like, the devil is real. They believe the devil can use your mind or your body to do evil things. And I think that in his mind, the fact that it would even be brought up made him question his reality almost. Okay. Also, I think that he had such a deeply entrenched trust of obviously God and the devil, but also the sheriff's department, law enforcement in general, that if they Mm -hmm. were questioning him, I think that he would have rather doubted himself than doubted that institution. Okay. If that makes sense. Um, that's kind of what I got out of Paul. Okay. Interesting. That is a very bizarre response. But I could see with the, like, first of all, where the the situation where all of this was started had, like, heavy religious mm-hmm. overtones. And it happened at a religious a ceremony or camp or whatever so I could see uh, this yeah I I could see someone who really might 
actually believe that the devil could take control of them responding that way. Weird. So weird. So several hours into the questioning, the detectives turned on a tape recorder in order to take Ingram's official statement. Uh-oh. So, so they'd already he... been talking for hours. <laughs> no, that's never a good thing. Un- unrecorded, right? Uh, there's notes. Okay. But it's not video taped or, or audio I don't, recorded? I don't think so. Oh, yikes. Okay. I think that's why it says that it was several hours before they turned on the questioning. Yikesy. Which Paul actually mentions later on. But if I remember, I'll touch on that then. Okay. <laughs> So Paul Ingram said on this recording of his official statement, quote, I really believe that the allegations did occur and that I did violate them and abuse them and probably for a long period of time. I've repressed it, end quote. When a detective asked Paul why he thought the sexual assault did happen if he had no memory of it, Paul said, quote, well, number one, my girls know me. They wouldn't lie about something like this. And uh, there's other evidence, end quote. When the detective asked what evidence he was referring to, Paul explained this, and this is another big quote. The way they've been acting for at least the last couple of years and the fact that I've not been able to be affectionate with them, uh, even though I want to be, I have a hard time hugging them or even telling them that I love them. And uh, I just know that's not natural. Then Paul Ingram went on to say, that he had probably touched both Erica and Julie in an inappropriate sexual manner, but he didn't remember anything. So his quote was basically, everything's been weird with us for a while. Mm -hmm. And it is weird that I can't even like really hug my kids. So maybe that's why. Is kind of his logic there. Okay, this is so, so crazy. All right. I am like so invested in this story. So then the tape recorder goes off again. The detectives tell Paul that his girls were traumatized and provided some information on what they had claimed. Um, They also explained that if Paul confessed, he may actually remember what happened. Uh Uh-oh. During this time, detectives also brought in Paul's pastor to help. Mm. And the pastor essentially told Paul that the Lord would not allow false memories or thoughts into his mind unless they actually happened. Basically, if you can think it, it happened. Yikes. According to detectives notes from during the interrogation, this during this time, Paul Ingram was praying feverishly. Oh, my goodness. This is giving me the heebie jeebies. Yeah, I I literally got the chills when I said praying feverishly. Paul also kept going into a, quote, trance type thing, according to the detective's notes. Mm -hmm. And when he would go into this trance, he would describe the scenes of abuse. But Paul described the scenes in a very strange way. It was almost as if he was watching them on a screen. For example, he said, quote, I would have removed her clothing, uh, at least the underpants or bottoms to the nightgown. And when detectives would try to correct, like ask or correct and be like, okay, you say would have now, do you mean would have, or did you? And then Paul would be like, oh, I did. 
So it was a strange way, like I would have done this or I would have done that or I can see this instead of saying I did this. This is what I did. It's just a way that people don't typically talk. But I Mm -hmm. guess sometimes people, you know, everybody's different. I don't know. It's just it was just so unusual that even detectives noticed it. So it was it was kind of coming up from a perspective. I don't remember this, but had I done it, this is what I would have done. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Okay. And I honestly wouldn't have even mentioned it, but even detectives did during the interrogation. So obviously they thought that it was strange as well. Yes. Hours later, Paul Ingram had confessed to sexually assaulting both of his daughters on numerous occasions, beginning when Erica was five years old. He also talked about having impregnated his younger daughter, Julie, and then taking her to have an abortion in the nearby town of Shelton when she was 15. And all of those memories were told in that dreamlike state that we just discussed okay the next day sandy was told of the confession um i think it was the day before sandy's birthday oh my goodness but this is just the beginning what she said 30 minutes in oh my goodness okay this is just the beginning this is wild i have so many questions i'm not gonna ask them because i'm sure you're gonna answer <laughs> them without me having to ask them so oh God, I have so much left okay after paul's confession and subsequent arrest he met with a Richard Peterson, a Tacoma psychologist who often worked with the local police. Mm -hmm. Paul asked why he had no memory of what he had done. Peterson told him that it was not uncommon for sexual offenders to bury the memories of their crimes because they were simply too horrible. He went on to say that Ingram himself had probably been abused as a child. During the investigation, more information came out about the sexual abuse, obviously, as Mm -hmm. the investigation went on. Right. And the types of sexual abuse began to shift. The abuse was becoming more violent and frightening. It was quickly turning into satanic ritual abuse, SRA, being performed by a satanic cult. Oh, no. And I'm going to actually mention Richard Peterson again later. He's going to come up again. Okay. So the Ingram sisters said that the abuse would often happen on the nights their father held his poker games. And that they would involve more than just Paul. Other men had abused them as well. And this added a whole other level to the case because many of the poker players were colleagues of Ingram's at the sheriff's department. So police began questioning Paul about his poker games and who attended. They also asked who he thought might have been involved in the sexual activities that his daughter described. So here's another quote from Paul. Quote, Jim Raby played with us. Jim and I have been fairly close. So uh, Paul implicated James L. Raby, the man who had done the electrical work on the Ingram's house as a favor, who once worked sex crimes. Also, just a side note, Jim Raby and the investigating detective apparently didn't like each other, and it was a well-known fact. Oh, no. Oh, no. That is not good. So as I said, Jim Raby was implicated, and Paul said that him and Jim tied up his daughter and abused her. It was terrible. Yeah. And this whole time, Paul was basically emotionless, and the detectives were, like, trying not to cry. The interrogation was intense and stressful and scary. Right. One of the detectives then asked during this interrogation if um, Paul was involved in black magic. And Paul said I that he used to, like, read the horoscope. Because Paul doesn't know what black magic is, apparently. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Here we go. Demonizing horoscopes. 
So then the detective said, quote, the satanic cult kind of thing. And um, Paul was like, at first he was like, no, but obviously he doesn't really understand what the question is. Then the detectives brought up how devastated Paul's daughters were, and Paul finally broke down. He finally had some emotion. The detective said, God's given you the tools to do this, Paul. You've got to show him by what you do and what you say as to whether or not you're worthy of his love and redemption and salvation. Strange quote from the detective. Yes, I don't. um, uh, And then Paul said, oh, Jesus, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. I don't like any of this. I don't I don't like any of this. I'm sorry I'm like laughing, but it's because it's so off the rails. Like this is a lot. Obviously, I'm editing parts of the interrogation out because right. we don't have 48 hours for me to read them all. But <laughs> I'm just picking the stuff that kind of gives the best little quick picture of how the interrogation went. So after this outburst... Paul began to explain another terrible example of sexually abusing his daughter. Um, And while he spoke, again, his eyes were closed and his voice was high, almost like he was in a trance. It's very strange. Um, But didn't you mention earlier that this was a church that spoke in tongues? Yeah, but tongues aren't a trance. I, I have, I beg to differ. I went with a friend of mine to a church who also spoke in tongues and Mm -hmm. it was, and I witnessed, it was very trance-like. I don't mean it's not a trance, but isn't it not speaking coherently? That's what I meant. Yes. It's, it's just like sounds made up words. Okay. Um, That's what I, but it is, it is, it is trance-like, but it's like, you're not speaking just. It's gibberish. Okay. I believe, in my opinion, it's gibberish. Like, maybe it, to them it actually is not gibberish, but it does sound like someone who is in a trance speaking, gib- trance speaking gibberish. Mm-hmm. So maybe this trance-like state was something that he was... Comfortable with? Comfortable with is what I'm getting at. We're actually going to come back to that. Oh, I knew You're you would so answer smart. the questions without me even having to ask them. So after this, Paul implicated another person from Poker Night, Ray Rish. Uh, Raymond Risch was a mechanic who worked for the Washington State Patrol. So after this whole big, you know, he implicated more people that are associated with law enforcement. Um, Paul had my favorite quote of the interrogation where he said, quote, boy, it's almost like I'm making it up, but I'm not. (laughs) So he had implicated several people in addition to Jim and Ray Mm -hmm. at this point he had supplied several new memories of sexual abuse one occasion as recent as the week before he left on vacation and Paul said that he was beginning to see weird shadows and tombstones in his memories he said it's like I'm watching a movie like a horror movie and I would agree it does sound like a fucking horror movie yeah it does yes it sounds like a plot to a horror movie. And I also want to add that aside from all the stuff that I'm I'm reading about the sexual abuse and the SRA, there were so many things that Paul alleged that he did, so many outlandish claims, I should say. He also basically implicated himself as the Green River Killer who had not been caught at that time, and his information was so wrong that detectives on that case were like, this is nothing. So he was just like confessing to everything, apparently, that he could, they could cross his mind. 
So first, Jim Raby was arrested. And at first, Jim didn't know what was coming and asked if he should talk to Paul, essentially to help along the investigation. Mm -hmm. At that point, the detective told him, you've been named. And according to the detectives, instead of immediately and emphatically denying the charges, Jim Raby undid his tie and opened his shirt and sat back in the chair with an immense sigh, which detectives took as uh, the I'm guilty look. Well, that could be interpreted many different ways. Yeah, that's just their interpretation. Yeah. Um, And Jim said that, Jim said, quote, I honestly do not have any recollection of that happening, and I do not believe that it could have done it and blocked it out. Jim also went on to say that he was basically terrified because if they really had all of this evidence on him, he was going to be in custody and that um, an ex-cop in prison is basically a death sentence. Right. Jim also said the same thing that Paul said initially, which is he didn't understand why if this happened, he couldn't remember any of it. Right. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. It's like this ongoing thing where everybody truly believes that you can repress this many memories. Well, maybe one person could, but two people, because brains are so different from one another and in, in like it just seems to be kind of even more bizarre that two different people can repress the same exact memories I think it's also and I'm going to kind of touch on what's going on in the outside world in a little bit Mm -hmm. but during this time because of Michelle remembers repressed memories was a very commonly held belief that's right which Michelle Michelle remembers is the book that we discussed on the first episode that kind of started the whole satanic panic. Absolutely. So I think that it made it easy for police to say, we have evidence that you did this because police can also say, I have this evidence or this person said this, it doesn't have to be true. Mm-hmm. So if a police officer sheriff that, you know, is telling you something, you believe that what they're saying is right to the point where you don't trust yourself. Yes. And it sounds like there was, um, this is starting to like snowball where reputable people are now not trusting their own memories Mm -hmm. exactly and just to let me touch on michelle remembers it was a book written by a girl uh, a canadian woman and her canadian psychiatrist who um, claimed to uncover repressed memories of michelle's mother performing um satanic ritual abuse on michelle Mm -hmm. as a child and it yes. has been debunked, but it came yes. out and it what it it incited fear and panic, and it it just like Tiffany said, um, people were not relying on their own memories anymore in some cases because of this book. Exactly. Then Ray Rish was brought in for questioning, and he said, "quote I wasn't present that I know of, unless I blocked it out of my head." The men were interrogated until morning. And by that time, law enforcement knew they had a cult on their hands. Oh, shit. Paul's two older sons were also interrogated. Chad was told that he had probably suppressed memories of being abused and that whoever did it should pay. The police officers actually insinuated that his uh, that Chad's abusers should pay with money that Ch- and that that um, that money could be used so that Chad could pay for a college education and a nice car is essentially what the detective said. What? That's so weird. After the detective made that statement about basically a payout by his abusers, Mm -hmm. Chad implicated the same men that his father did. Then 
Detective spoke with the oldest son, Paul Jr., who said he hated his father and immediately asked if he was being held because of sexual assault charges. Oh, no. Okay. So take that as you will. So the older son lived in Nevada at the time. He bailed on Thurston County, and he had a charge of, um, I think he beat somebody's car with a baseball bat. So he had a warrant out. Um, And I don't know if somebody had reached out to him prior to the interrogation or interview to see if you know, to let him know what was going on. So I don't know if somebody told Paul, hey, the police are probably going to contact you because your father's in prison for this. Right. Or if he just didn't know why he was being questioned and immediately asked, is my father in jail for sexual assault? I don't know. Yeah. But he did say he hated his dad. So Sandy was also questioned and she basically lawyered up and left town to stay with a relative with their youngest son, Mark, because shit was just hitting the fan. Allegations were starting to also come to be pointed at Sandy, that she was a part of the abuse. The allegations were that she was at sometimes a witness to the abuse, at other times a perpetrator of the abuse. And Sandy was like, I did not do these things. She denied all of the allegations. She got a lawyer and her and Mark went and stayed, like I said, with a relative because I think that she just needed to distance herself a little bit from everything that was happening, which was a lot. Yeah. So here we are. Half the Ingram family implicated, half the sheriff's department implicated, and there are so many other figures in this case. There's this, their pastor who keeps popping up and giving totally shitty advice. Right. Um, there was the therapist that I mentioned earlier, Richard mm-hmm. Peterson. But an interesting fact about Richard Peterson was that he was so into the subject of satanic cults and satanic ritual abuse that he conducted a casual survey whatever that means of Tacoma and Seattle therapists in 1988 and he found in this survey that a quarter of the respondents had treated victims of satanic ritual abuse or SRA as it was becoming known at the time Mm -hmm. so basically he did a survey with all of these all of these therapists that he knew in Tacoma and Seattle in 88 and those therapists said that a quarter of their patients were victims of SRA Right smack dab in the middle of 1980s satanic panic. A quarter, one fourth, one in four has been abused by a satanic cult. I hate, okay. Um, And I also want to add here that detectives seem to be extremely affected by the investigation, which is understandable. They Mm -hmm. were dealing with coworkers and people that they knew in their small community abusing children horribly. Mm -hmm. And if all these accusations were true, that is very disturbing and terrifying Mm-hmm. And then you add another layer on top of it. If these um, investigators were also devoutly religious, you add the layer of, you know, the public enemy number one, the devil. Yeah. So it's even more, I'm sure, um, terrifying and stressful. Yes. They honestly, it's it, everything that I read spoke often about how um, upset, how devastated they were by what they were learning. Mm hmm. What's more, detectives also believed that what they had learned in so far was just the tip of the iceberg. They believed that they were on the precipice of uncovering a satanic cult. Even beyond that, perhaps a nationwide satanic conspiracy. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, let's not be dramatic here, but okay, continue. I want to be dramatic. How dare you? (laughs) And like we were saying earlier, they're not living in a bubble. 
like Michelle remembers is obviously in everybody's head. Mm-hmm. That's why there's this whole overarching theme of maybe I don't remember what I did for a decade mm-hmm. because of Michelle remembers. On October 25th of that year, the Ingram family sat down together and watched a primetime Geraldo Rivera special on NBC entitled Devil Worship, Exposing oh. Satan's Underground. Oh my goodness. And at the time, it was one of the most widely watched documentaries in television history. Although that's obviously only one of so many shows like that that came out at the time. Oh, there's so many. All of the talk show hosts did one. Yeah. And on that show, a young girl testified, quote, my dad was involved in a lot of it. He's like one of the main guys. He's a leader or something. He made us have sex with him and with other guys and with other people, end quote. That was on the show. So... The Ingram family and Thurston County, they were exposed to all of this coming in, obviously. Right. right. Erica also had a copy of Michelle Remembers that her aunt gifted her. I don't know when she received this book. I don't know if she had it before the charge, before the allegations. I don't know if she got it in the middle. I do not know. I just, it was just mentioned in, in an article that she had it. Also, just as this case was really ramping up, and law enforcement really believed there was a satanic cult running the streets of their small town, Adolfo Constanzo's ritual kill shelter was uncovered in Mexico, where he had killed a young Texas college student who had went to Mexico on spring break. Oh, that's right. I, I know that case well. It just added fire to the frenzy that was already happening. Yes. Now, Thurston County was definitely not going to slow this investigation down. The abuse claims were ramping up. Everyone began to remember violent ritual abuse. The girls claimed the cult had killed babies, done forced abortions, killed animals, and committed sexual assault. Paul's memories became more graphic, too. Aerial searches for bodies and ritual fires were conducted over the county. Aerial searches. The Ingram's property was searched for human remains. The girls' bodies were examined for scarring left by the abuse. All of the investigation... Thousands upon thousands of dollars and who knows how many man hours all led to nothing. No physical evidence. Right. Because the one thing about this case is that there were a few, few situations or incidents that they mentioned that were like legitimately um, like proven just beyond someone's word. So like taking a trip to California, they would be able to trace that. I never saw any follow-up on that if Mm -hmm. they found evidence of those things. It was not mentioned, and I feel like it would have been mentioned because law enforcement would have mentioned that they had that hard evidence. Yeah. And I did not find any follow-up with that or with the doctors. Okay. So then a new figure made his way on the scene because I think we need a little bit more going on here. (laughs) Dr. Offshe, a social psychologist from the University of California at Berkeley, who had been recommended to the prosecution as an expert on cults and mind control. Dr. Offshe was knowledgeable in coercive police interrogations as well. Oh. In fact, at that time, a paper he had written concerning innocent people who became convinced of their guilt and confessed was about to be published in the, in the Cultic Studies Journal. So, of course, Dr. Offshe met with Paul, and they discussed his memories of the events. Paul told Dr. Offshe he had been practicing a relaxation technique that he had read about in a magazine where he could imagine going into a warm white fog. Minutes would pass and then more images would come, he said. And he felt confident that they were real memories because his shit brick pastor, that's what I call him, not Paul. 
That's appropriate. His shipwreck pastor had assured him that God would bring him only the truth. Oh my goodness. Oh my freaking. Can you After imagine? a while. <laughs> after a while, he would write his memories down. Dr. Offshe wondered if Paul was possibly taking a daydream and recording it as memory. <sighs> Dr. Offshe also met with Julie and Erica where their allegations were explored. Erica said she had attended 850 rituals during her life and watched 25 babies sacrificed. Erica was good at the big picture stuff, but when Dr. Offshe asked what else happened during the rituals, Erica replied that they chanted. Um, but when pressed for more details, Erica said she couldn't remember or she said that it was too stressful to talk about. I feel like 25 babies would be missed and someone would be reporting those babies missing. I think that the claim is like the people being sexually abused, their babies are taken from them. Okay. So it would be like un, um, yeah. known, unknown babies or exactly. hidden babies. Okay. Just, just the worst, most terrifying thought. Yes. Yes. Okay. Got it. Then Dr. Offshe spoke with Sandy. Sandy also discussed the shipwreck pastor. She explained how he helped her and Paul remember other memories. Sandy explained, quote, There are things I remember, like birthday parties and how old the kids were in this particular year. Then there are things that I've remembered since then. It is different from what my other memories are. End quote. After the pastor's guidance, Sandy detailed several rape scenes with the two other men that Paul had implicated. Uh, she also remembered satanic rituals in the woods after she had her um, talk with the pastor. Um, Dr. Offshe kind of prodded more and was like, do you see the scene or do you remember the scene? Mm-hmm. Sandy gave this really disturbing quote. She said, no, I see it. And uh, everybody says this Pledge of Allegiance and we're all outside. And there's this book on the table and uh, Jim is holding my shoulder and his nails are all painted black and they're real long and they go into my shoulder and this book is bleeding. And Paul and the high priestess and Jim touch it and the blood runs all over Jim and up his arm and all over his head and then it runs all over me. And she's crying. She started crying then. So this conversation with Sandy and Dr. Offshe goes on for a while I've given so many quotes in this episode, but the amount of like disturbing quotes I have cut out of this retelling Mm -hmm. is incredible. Incredible. Dr. Offshe also basically, which this is kind of, I don't know. Dr. Offshe also basically implanted a memory in in Paul's head to see if he could do it. Just Uh, to see how impressionable Paul was. uh, And it worked. He made up a lie, told Paul. Paul went and prayed on it and then came back and remembered the lie Offshe told him. Which is not great, but also it's like he just wanted to be like, how impressionable are these people? Right, right. I mean, it isn't great, but it's I understand why he would do that to test kind of his theory. Yeah, not the most ethical. So after speaking with the family, Dr. Offshe now had serious doubts about whether Paul Ingram was guilty of anything except for being a highly suggestible individual with a tendency to float in and out of trance states and of having a patent and rather dangerous eagerness to please authority oh my goodness he is that if paul is that person he is doomed for any kind of situation like this like he was the perfect person to get caught up in satanic panic it's a perfect storm 
Right. Because Paul is driving the ship. Right. Dr. Off, she also thought that Erica was a habitual liar and that Julie was basically just following her lead. Okay. Which is not, and again, I'm coming from a place of, my opinion, kind of neutral neutrality, but I do feel like you mentioned that there was other allegations before that were investigated and proven to be non-substantiated. They were non They were, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever. And um, so we have this thing again. It's kind of rolling out of, because it's this isn't outside of the realm of, and we don't have to like keep feeding a fed horse and saying like we believe victims. Like if you've listened, if you know us, you know that. Mm-hmm. But there are situations where habitual liars ac- accuse people, and it's just not true. Yeah, we just we don't know. That was Offshe's opinion. We don't know what has happened to these women. We don't know. Yes. Yes, and that's how I feel, is something must have, but we don't know what. That's how I feel, personally. It seemed like something might have happened to them Mm -hmm. just because of all the allegations, but I don't know what, where, when, who, or why, Mm -hmm. or how. Yeah, yes. Um, I just know it wasn't. Satanic ritual abuse. Yes. Yeah. Also, and I need to add this in here, just, let's just go for it, Cassie, you're going to love this. Okay. Paul's dad, I watched an interview with Paul's dad, mm-hmm. and he said that when Paul was a kid, uh, he would hypnotize Paul and his siblings into getting good grades, being polite, <gasps> and listening. Oh, no. Paul's father also claimed that he was easily hypnotized. So maybe that's where the weird trances were coming from. Um, or, or maybe yes. Paul can be talked into anything. Or maybe there was some truth to the accusations. I don't know. All that I know is don't hypnotize your kids into getting good grades and doing chores. Oh, my gosh. No. That's the worst thing that they could do. You, you're you literally setting your child up to be so malleable by other people. It was like his dad was like, I was a hobbyist hypnotist. And you know how much oh, Cassie hates no. hypnotism, you guys. There's, it's I, I, it's when I saw so that, dangerous. I was like, oh, Cassie is going to lose it on oh, this. Oh, no. I just got the chills. I hate that. I hate that Paul's dad did that to him. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Not good. Okay. Whose parents hypnotize them into doing chores? I need to know this. <laughs> Dr. Offshe, after gathering all of this information, believed a modern-day witch trial was about to begin. Hmm. In February 1989, Jim Raby and Ray Risht waived their right to a speedy trial in exchange for limited freedom. They were fitted with electronic bracelets and confined to their homes. Dr. Offshe sent a report stating his feelings on the confessions to the presiding judge of the court, and the judge agreed to make the report available to the defense attorneys. Dr. Offshe's report was a huge blow to the already shaky case. Right. If we all remember, all of the investigating for physical evidence had turned up nothing. Nada. Eventually, the Ingram investigation would cost three quarters of a million dollars. Oh, no. On May 1st, 1989, the trials of Jim Raby, Ray Risch, and Paul Ingram were scheduled to begin. A statement was put out saying, This office has done a remarkable job in uncovering the first ritualistic abuse investigation that has been confirmed by an adult offender involved directly with the offenses in the nation's history. Clearly, we're on the cutting edge of knowledge being gained from ritual abuse. Oh, my goodness. And you know what? They might have been wrong about a lot, but they were right on one thing. This is the first and maybe only time that someone who was accused of SRA Mm -hmm. actually admitted that they did it. 
and it was Paul Ingram. Well, who was also hypnotized throughout his childhood and highly suggestible and eager to please. And, and maybe like, he was never out of the, I mean, maybe his dad never like snapped him back to reality. He might've been hypnotized since he was nine, Cassie. We don't or, know. Yeah. Or maybe his hypnotist word is, hey, Paul. How many people in his life probably said, hey, Paul, and then told him something, and then he now has that as a memory? However, by the time the trial began, all of the charges of satanic ritual abuse were gone. They were dropped. The case was solely about the original charges. Instead of SRA, Paul Ingram was charged with several counts of sexual assault. Paul Ingram spared the investigators and his family any further embarrassment and decided to plead guilty to six counts of third-degree rape. Both Erica and Julie had written him saying that he owed them that much. Sandy, who had begun divorce proceedings, also asked him to plead guilty. Two days after Paul Ingram pled guilty, the prosecutor dropped the charges against Raby and Rish. They had been in custody 158 days. In May 1989, Dr. Offshe had a telephone conversation with Paul and tried to persuade Paul to change his guilty plea. That's how sure Dr. Offshe was that Paul was innocent. Yeah. Paul told him that although he had been having doubts himself about the validity of some of his memories, he hoped he would be able to fill in the blanks eventually and figure out why everyone's stories had so many inconsistencies. Um, I... At this point, I'm not a lawyer, but I almost feel like he's not competent to stand trial. I'm not saying he didn't do anything. I'm not saying that there wasn't some kind of abuse going on. It sounds like there was definitely more to this family than what they showed on the outside, just with the kids leaving and the severe hatred of the father by the other other children and the bizarre behavior. Let's just say that maybe one of those girls was a habitual liar. That is still bizarre behavior that had to stem from something, I believe. So I'm not saying either way. I think something strange did happen. It definitely wasn't satanic ritual abuse. But also I almost feel like Paul is not competent to stand trial at this point based on what I've learned just this whole storm of like these highly religious people mm-hmm. their deep trust in religion their deep trust in law enforcement agencies mm-hmm. and then Paul's own trust in his own daughters and mm-hmm. I don't know if he was I don't know who Paul was I don't know what he might have done but there was just so many things this overarching with all of that going on and then there was this overarching satanic panic happening that Mm -hmm. colored every single other aspect of every person's life Mm -hmm. that cannot be overstated it was on the news it was in the media it was in the paper it was in books it was on fucking talk shows I mean it colored every decision that people made Mm -hmm. so after Paul said that you know he hoped someday he would figure out why none of it kind of made sense to him Dr. Offshe told him in one last-ditch effort, quote, nobody can blank out as many events as you think you blanked out. It has never happened. Paul, everything that you told me this evening adds up to one thing. There exists a process that you have learned to use that allows you to invent images that are consistent with what you think should be happening. But even after this, Paul didn't change his plea. Hmm. However, a few months into his prison sentence, Paul began to rethink everything. 
Oh, well, yeah, that because he was in prison at this point and was like, I don't really like it here. Yeah, maybe without the constant questioning and persuasion, Paul uh-huh. saw everything clearly for the first time in months. Or maybe you're right, he just fucking hated prison. Either way, Paul no longer believed that he was a Satanist or a child abuser. He got a new lawyer who filed a motion to withdraw his guilty plea on the grounds that he had been coerced in the course of being interrogated and had given incriminating testimony while in a trance-like state. Unfortunately, it was too late to change his plea. All his lawyer could do was petition for leniency at the sentencing hearing in April of 1990. So Paul spoke about this later, basically saying that they would talk for hours and hours and hours, and then once he got to the point that detectives wanted him to be at, then they would turn on the tape recorder. Yeah, that's not ethical. So at the sentencing hearing in 1990, Erica asked the judge to impose the greatest possible sentence. She said, quote, I believe he will either kill me or Julie. He destroyed me and Julie's life and our entire family, and he doesn't care. He is obviously a very dangerous man. As she spoke, the detective sat in the back of the court and wept openly. When Erica finished, the judge asked Paul Ingram if he had anything to say. Ingram rose and said, I stand before you. I stand before God. I have never sexually abused my daughters. I am not guilty of these crimes. The judge showed no interest in this change of heart. He sentenced Ingram to 20 years in prison with the possibility of parole after 12 years. In 1992, Erica appeared on Sally Jeffy Raphael's show. While Paul was in prison, recovered memory therapy, or RMT as it's often referred to, Mm -hmm. um, which most of this case relied on, was discredited. (laughs) And although Paul claimed his innocence at the trial and after, I did not find any indication that Paul's daughters ever changed their mind on their accusations. Please, if anyone listening has any updates on the family, um, feel free to reach out. I tried to see, because in a lot of these cases... The people who claimed that they were abused ended up changing their stories, although in those cases it was usually young children. Right. But I, I could not find anything. And the last thing that I saw that was the most recent said that Paul Ingram was not allowed to contact Julie and Erica, which is probably for the best. Mm-hmm. For all of them involved. Yes. Proponents of Paul Ingram's innocence started a group called the Ingram Organization. This organization was created to seek justice for Paul. In 2003, Paul Ingram was released from prison, and he still maintains his innocence. That was a whirlwind of a story. There's so many things that made me go, what the fuck? And it also makes it hard because the women are standing by their story. That's Mm -hmm. why I said I'm not going to call anybody a liar. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to lay it all out. And I'm not, I don't, I mean, it's just... It's hard. It's a, there's a lot there. So you Mm -hmm. know what? Take away with it what you want to take away. I don't actually ever want to talk again because that was the longest I've ever talked in my life. (laughs) Maybe. I am a hundred percent right where you are too. I think that is bizarre and so sad for everybody involved. And there's definitely a lot of unethical things going on there and it started with Paul's dad hypnotizing his children like what the fuck (laughs) that makes me so mad and then it just kind of spiraled out of there letting a pastor be involved in some kind of a police interrogation is crazy to me yeah 
and then even the detectives mentioning I mean I get it there's like tactics that detectives need to use to get a confession out of someone so maybe they were um using you know repent card or the, the religious card to get Paul to kind of um, confess to what they wanted him to confess to but getting him to a point where he is going to confess and then turning on the tape is not okay they only had so much tape Cassie <laughs> I mean this is just wild and crazy and it's like it's honestly one of those things where I I just don't know what happened I just feel like something happened I just don't mm-hmm. think what they say happened happened that's and that's just my personal opinion I'm not trying to you know def- not trying to speak bad about anybody involved. I just, right. I don't know what happened. I just feel like something happened and it's just, yeah, I, I the, just, I've been just really immersed in this and I feel like I haven't come out of it with any more knowledge than I went in with it. If that it, makes that's sense. That's how I feel. It totally makes sense because that's how I feel. It's like, what the hell happened? And the only people that know what happened are the people involved. Oh my gosh. Thank you for doing that research and thank you for all your work. That was fucking wild and crazy. Uh, So I knew that you were going to do a doozy. So I did a little anecdotal kind of a silly one. Thank Um, God. Thank, wait, uh, Satan Sabbath. Well, (laughs) it is something that would happen at Satan Sabbath if you eat because this is a little satanic foul play, if you will. Oh, okay. Um, and this comes, this is a way old timey one. I brought it way back to the beginning, uh, even before a satanic panic. It was, well, I'll, let me just get into okay. it. Um, <laughs> so my source for this is a, uh, grunge.com article and that will be listed in the description. Nice. And we are coming from Basel, Switzerland, mm-hmm. Basel, Switzerland, mm-hmm. um, in 1474 okay so this farmer who lived in switzerland in Mm -hmm. 1474 goes out to his chicken coop now i totally made this part up i don't know if he had a chicken coop what well he did at some point go look at his chickens i don't know if they're in a coop i feel like it's adds to the story if they're in a coop Mm -hmm. it's you know i'm painting a picture here And he has discovered, he discovered that one of his roosters laid an egg. (gasps) Uh, Oh, it couldn't have just rolled under the rooster? It laid, I don't know if he watched it, (laughs) but it laid an egg. He was sure of it. (laughs) Okay. And I know what you're thinking, like, what's the big deal? A rooster laid an egg. Or like you said, you know, like, uh, what if he just happened to be sitting on an egg that he didn't know was there? And now Don't all of they a sudden, have to sit on them? I, well, yes. They, I think it's incubate, right? Yeah. Don't they have to sit on them to sperm them up? <laughs> Fucking kill me. Oh, do me. they sperm them after? <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. I, we really should know this. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll get back to you. I'll get back to you on that if they sperm them after they're hatched. How do they get in there? <laughs> this is when wiccophobia satanic panics much much older sister maybe satanic panics like great 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 grandma mm-hmm. um comes into play and this 
caused people to assume anything out of the ordinary was witchcraft. What? Yes. So old-timey British scholar Alexander Neckham speculated that if a rooster laid an egg mm-hmm. and it was incubated by a toad, mm-hmm. that it would turn into a cockatrice. What's What's a cockatrice, you ask? Yes, I was asking. It's a mystical, evil reptile with the ability to kill with just one look. Whoa. Yes. And it's also known as a basilisk. You might have heard of a basilisk before. Oh, yeah. Every day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So during this time, people were really, really fucking scared of basilisks or cockatrice, whatever these fucking things are. I like cockatrice. It's like three cocks. It's cockatrice. Uh, Cockatrice. I don't know if they had a English accent. accent. I don't know. (laughs) Um, All right. So they believed that egg-laying roosters were the spawn of Satan, and they were also used by witches to cast spells. And this rooster that laid an egg basically caused so much chaos and so much panic in this little Switzerland town that they fucking arrested the rooster and they charged him with witchcraft. Oh my God. Imagine if they found out about seahorses. They would lose their fucking minds. We would, they would build ju- uh, an underwater prison just for seahorses. So did they put tiny handcuffs on the rooster? <laughs> I think so. No, I don't know what they did with them. Um, poor guy. Um, the rooster, the poor guy, the rooster has no idea what's going on. <laughs> well, they did do the right thing because they did assign him a public defender. Are you serious? Yes. This really happened. This is an official court records in this town. This lawyer's like, fuck my life. I'm the worst lawyer ever. I'm defending a fucking bird. Okay. But he took his job seriously because this is what was they found in court documents on okay so the defender the public defender quote on behalf of the gallinaceous prisoner his advocate submitted that no evil animus had been proved against his client and that no injury to man nor beast has resulted end quote so basically he hasn't done anything wrong he hasn't injured anybody no harm no foul uh I knew you. I knew you You would come through with a good pun. I knew it. I knew I could count on you. Oh, my I love God. It. Do you think this is where that expression came from? Let's yes. tell everybody that's where it came from. We'll just start this rumor. Okay. 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 Done. I love it. The prosecutor responded, quote, It was not a case of the devil making a compact with brutes, but that Satan actually entered into them on occasion. End quote. I think that is a little bit sexy. Satan enters um, into roosters and yes, makes them lay eggs because they're so excited. Yes, he's implying, I think, that there was some sexy time going on. Like Zeus would just come down and be like, now you're pregnant. Yep. Boom. Shakalaka. Half human, half God. The rooster, unfortunately, was convicted of witchcraft. And <laughs> he was sentenced to death. Now. What? Yes. They... <laughs> Burn this rooster 
on the steak. What? And I ac- yes, I accidentally spelled it steak like steak. So it's <laughs> like, like surf and turf. <laughs> yes. Turf and air. Turf and foul. Um, yes. So they took the rooster to the town square, burned it and its egg at the stake while everybody watched, noblemen and peasants alike, they all came together. Um, and thankfully, the owner of the rooster was found not to have participated in any witchcraft with the accused. That person is so fucking lucky. Oh, they are so lucky. I cannot believe the townspeople didn't immediately burn that person at the stake, too. Instead, they had a whole fucking trial for a, a fucking rooster. I wonder if they ate the rooster. I was going to ask you that. They didn't say whether they feasted upon the rooster. They should have rotisseried him. Instead of burning him at the stake, they should have burned him <laughs> on the stake. <laughs> um, now, I looked into this because I'm like, how is this possible? Mm-hmm. And it is very possible for a rooster to lay an egg. Oh, really? Yes. And it's very simple. The rooster was not actually a rooster but a hen that had a hormonal imbalance that made its little waddle mm-hmm. bigger than normal. So mm-hmm. it had, um, it presented secondary physical characteristics of a rooster. So its feathers were more rooster-like than hen-like. Its waddle was bigger, um, that's more rooster-like than hen-like. So it was actually a hen. It just had a hormonal imbalance. Two birds, one stone. It'll lay your eggs and wake you up at dawn. Yes, exactly. Now, God Sounds sent like a good rooster. Yes, the devil's work. I don't think so. I think evolution, baby. Yeah, I love it. Give me um, one of those. Yes, except for I don't really want a rooster to wake me up in the morning. No, but also, how are the eggs fertilized? I don't think they could do that. We honestly don't know how eggs are fertilized um, on this podcast, so. Um, we never claim to be a chicken reproductive podcast. Um, so. What if this is how it started? <laughs> We're starting an offshoot. Every episode from here on out was about chicken reproduction. <laughs> the only thing that I ever knew about how chickens lay eggs is in the cartoon where they would hold a candle behind it and then see if there was a chicken side. And I assume that oh. still happens today. Yeah, probably. I think that that's is exactly what happens. That's a peak of technology these days. Yeah, just a candle behind an egg. I that story. This is incredible to me. I love every aspect of this story. I told you, I I picked kind of a silly one, and you know what? It, the crazier thing is, for the next three hundred years, lots more um, hens disguised as roosters were convicted and put to death. Wasn't the only one. They have really? records mm-hmm, all the way until mid um 1700s they had court records of other roosters being convicted or at least brought to trial i don't know if it said you know any of them were burned at the stake well i know some of them were mm-hmm. but i it didn't say whether um any were um not found not guilty of witchcraft well it's hard for them to defend themselves for starters i mean can this also just be a conspiracy that the person who's in charge of the fires just wanted to eat chicken that month? <laughs> because if you think about it, it's like winter, winter chicken dinner for that guy. How many chicken puns can we come up with? Come on. I, we're, doing, we're on a roll here with these chicken puns. Well, I don't know um, what came first, the witchcraft chicken or the chicken dinner. I don't know. 
the rooster or the egg? Who knows? Who That's knows? an age-old question that will never be answered. The question that we've asked since the beginning of time. What came first? The Wiccan chicken or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All I know is that the guy that owned that rooster dodged a fucking bullet oh, my on gosh. that one. He better... I'm sure he thanked his lucky stars every day after that and maybe got rid of all of his chickens because he's I like... I, emotionally, he couldn't go through that again. You... <laughs> You you know he was sweating bullets just waiting for someone to turn on him and be like, witch, witch, warlock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was a I great know. story. So. Incredible. Educational? Yes. Um, Silly. Well, you know yes. what? Let's end this. Let's end this on a super educational note. Okay. Let's find out exactly how eggs are fertilized. Um, so, oh, a hen does need a rooster to lay fertile eggs. Basically, the male mates with the female. The rooster sperms travels into the hen's oviduct and fertilize the yolk of any eggs laid within the next couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Now you know. Mm-hmm. Educational. Mm-hmm. Chicken sex ed. And then you hold the egg in front of the candle, like in the cartoon. And that's how you know yes. if you can eat it or not. Because if there's yes. a little chicken in there dancing, then you put it aside. Then you put it aside and let it hatch. Yeah. Mm. And you just wait until it's a rooster and you accuse it of witchcraft. And then you mm-hmm. eat it after you burn it at the stake in front of the whole town. Do it right. Yes. <laughs> you came for the true crime satanic panic and you stayed for chicken sex ed. You are welcome. <laughs> I guess that, you know what, that pretty much wraps it up for today. Thank you so, 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 so much for listening. We appreciate it so much. We truly do. And if you have just a minute, 30 seconds to write a review on Apple Podcasts, we would Mm -hmm. appreciate it so much. The five stars are great, but also I think the written reviews kind of push us up a little bit. Yes, they do. We really appreciate all the reviews we've gotten so far and we would love a few more. Yes, um, we are killing it over on Good Pods, and let's get some let's get some things happening on Apple. And also, you can rate on Spotify now. Oh yeah! So wherever you listen, if you can mm-hmm. give us a good rating, it helps out small pods like ours so incredibly much. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us for Happy Hour. Yes, and on that note, don't forget to love yourself, lock your doors, and listen to your gut. Cheers to that! Cheers to that! Oh my god, stayed for the chicken sex ed. <laughs>